Well, a special welcome to you all, and thank you for coming on Boxing Day. Uh, sure you've had a busy weekend, and uh, this Christmas, some of us are celebrating and excited to celebrate with our family members, with some full tables, full tummies, and extra family time, and that's uh, very, very wonderful to do if you're able to. Christmas brings people together with great cheer, and for the most part, uh, Christmas is a happy time of year, right? It's, it's a happy time. But not everyone is experiencing Christmas in the same way. Some of us feel real barrenness and loneliness and isolated and empty at Christmas. We're suffering inside, in silence. We feel the pain of having to face estranged family members. We feel the pain of our chronic illness as it intensifies. Things are broken, and it seems nobody can fix them. But this isn't only true at Christmas time, of course. This is true of life, right? Christmas is often a snapshot of how we handle life itself. The struggles, the pains, the sufferings, the sorrows of life seem to be intensified at Christmas for that small little moment where we're all together. But we see what we do with how we handle life at Christmas time. It's true even of us who are followers of Jesus and love Jesus and have hope of eternal life. We too have problems with pain and problems with people. And many things in our lives are left broken and unfixed even right now. And while I don't want to minimize any of these problems and pains, they're real, they hurt, these problems are really signs or symptoms of a deeper root problem in our lives. Our pain problem and our people problems come out of a deeper heart problem. And it's this, our relationship with God is broken. It's broken. Now, uh, all of a sudden, immediately, we recognize how big our problem is. If we think of this, and if we think of who God Almighty actually is, we realize we have a big problem. If our relationship is broken with Him, we're in trouble. Because if you've ever broken a relationship or had a falling out with someone, you realize how painful and hard it is to make things right again. How much effort it takes, and how uncomfortable it is to... Make things right with that friend or that family member who you're estranged from, especially when it's our fault. It's especially humbling. And so it is with our broken relationship with God. We're responsible for the problem. We're the ones at fault here. And uh, we cannot repair the damage that we've caused. It's beyond us. We're at fault and we've offended God Almighty. We cannot mend or fix or repair this relationship. But the good news you discover as you read through the Bible is that God the Creator actually repairs the broken relationship with His creation. And today uh, I'd like us to see this as we look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, the prophet, was given the task uh, hundreds of years before Christ came of telling God's people Israel of a time when their suffering would be especially painful. It would be extremely intense. 
They would suffer because instead of staying true to the true God, they went after false gods, idols. A terrible betrayal in Scripture known as idolatry or spiritual adultery. And if they continued to neglect their relationship with God, God would send prophets to warn them over time and over years. Different prophets would come and tell them, listen, if you neglect your relationship with God, He will discipline you because He cares about you. He will discipline you. And how would God discipline them? He would discipline the people of God by sending them into exile. They would be exiled. Oh, this is, what does this even mean? It's not a word I use throughout the day, probably not one that you use either. But what does exile mean? To be exiled is to be banished or cast out. Particularly, we're talking about the promised land. They'd be cast out of the, 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 the promised land and into a foreign land under cruel and foreign masters. This was a major problem because when they were banished from the promised land, they were banished not only from the physical promised land, but also from the blessing and intimacy they once had with their loving Lord. Their problems were big because they had broken their covenant with God. A covenant means a relational agreement between two parties. In this case, it's between the Lord and his servants. His people, Israel, have broken covenant with him. Now, because they broke their side of the covenant, their life as exiles was marked by estrangement from him. They were separated from him. They didn't enjoy that intimacy of the covenant relationship with him. That's a problem. A problem we can all relate to, isn't it? Because it's a problem we all have, don't we? At times, we walk away and we're estranged from God because we turn our backs on the true God to serve false gods. We've all been estranged from God because we've broken off the relationship with Him. Now, why is it that we do this, do you think? Sin? Good answer. I like what Heath Lambert says. Uh, biblical counselor, pastor Heath Lambert uh, says, whether it's called pride, hubris, self-supremacy, arrogance, a desire to be like God, or a hundred other things, the most important consideration in the sinful human heart is oneself. Ooh. Sinners exalt themselves above the true God, making their own rules and deciding on their own what is good for them. Sinners jockey for position with their neighbors and seek to be served rather than to serve. All the lusts and evil desires that the Bible mentioned that the Bible mentions are a secondary problem that flows out of the primary problem, a heart that sees itself as supreme. That's our problem. That's my problem. That's your problem. That's humanity's problem. We see ourselves as supreme. I'm all that matters to me. And I think all that should matter to you is me. That's the problem with our sinful heart. Right? Our whole world revolves around us. Our hearts have a huge problem because our hearts are deadly, deceitful, and stupidly sinful. But for the rest of the sermon, we're going to dwell on this. Our greatest problem, your greatest problem, and my greatest problem in life, that our sinful heart is responsible 
for breaking, out the, breaking up the relationship with God, that problem has been resolved by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend some time dwelling on the fact together that uh, taking deep sighs and big sighs of relief at the fact that Jesus Christ has broken our, has, sorry, repaired our broken relationship with God. We're going to spend some happy times together remembering the good news that Jesus has accomplished our redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. He has accomplished this by his labor of love at the cross, fixing our biggest problem in life. And he did this not because he saw how impressive we are. He did this because of his covenant love for his people. Because he is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. Today we're going to start a short series covering Isaiah 54 and 55. So feel free to turn to Isaiah 54. Uh, I plan to preach on chapter 54 today, and then, Lord willing, in two weeks, on the 9th of January, I'll preach on the 50, uh, Isaiah 55. Uh, next week, our elder Phil will be uh, preaching. But in this short series, uh, there's a main theme that I think is uh, simple and profoundly refreshing for all of us. It's this. Christ restores our broken relationship with God, then invites us in. Christ restores our broken relationship with God, then invites us in. In other words, he accomplishes our salvation, then calls us in to come and enjoy it with him. Now before we dig into this text in Isaiah 54, let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's truly an amazing thing to consider your grace towards us to sing these songs that are true of us in Christ, to consider that there's opportunity today to remember that you've repaired the relationship with God and to sing about it and to rejoice in you. Pray that you'd speak through your word, that you'd strengthen the faith of those who are here, wearied, discouraged, filled with pains and griefs and sorrows. And Lord, for those of us that need a humbling, we pray that your word would humble us as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's uh, get a, uh, an idea of uh, the context of Isaiah. It's a gigantic chapter, or sorry, gigantic book, 66 chapters, has been called the Bible in miniature, covers a whole bunch of history, uh, especially the, the, the sweep of salvation history, creation, fall, redemption, and the new creation. It's, it's, it covers a great lot of themes, uh, theological themes from Scripture. It was written 700 some odd years before Christ. Um, so when you're coming to Isaiah, you're coming to this just this great book. And uh, it's not only great because of the size of it, but, but the content of it is just so extremely encouraging. But it starts not so encouraging. It starts uh, the first section, uh, probably could be broken up from chapters 1 to 39, about, basically about judgment. Uh, and the second section, um, different theme, we'll get to that in a second, but that's uh, 40 through 66 is the second section of Isaiah. 
This first section spends a whole lot of time confronting Israel, warning them that if they didn't repent of their rebellion, we've already talked a little bit about this, they would suffer for their sins by being exiled. Uh, But being stubborn, you'll see that they didn't turn and therefore they suffered in exile. And so that's the first section of of the book, chapters 1 to 39. But the second section of Isaiah has a very different tone and theme to it. In chapter, uh, chapter 40, uh, Isaiah moves from confronting God's people to actually comforting them. It's uh, staggering. In chapters 40 to 66, God spends a lot of time speaking of restoration and salvation for his people through the suffering servant who we know to be Jesus Christ. We hear these words of comfort in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity or her rebellion is pardoned. You can almost hear the people taking a deep breath at these words of comfort. Wow! Comfort my people? I've just been being confronted by God and now I'm being comforted. Because in surprising fashion, and in the context of their rebellion, their exile, we're being taken into the theme of Isaiah. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. And as we move through the second half of the book, we see that his good plans for his people go far beyond saving them from temporary exile. He's out to save them from their sins. He's out to restore their relationship with him. Though they deserve judgment, their guilt and sin is pardoned because of Jesus, their substitute. And this brings real comfort to people like them, like us, who know we've blown it with God, doesn't it? To know that God has sent a Redeemer brings comfort to our hearts because the Lord, who is salvation, is our salvation. The context of our text today is placed right at the end of four songs known as the servant songs in Isaiah. These songs can be found in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53. The most familiar of those songs, of course, being Isaiah 53. What a beautiful text. We don't have time to dig into that today. But each of these songs revolves around the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. He would redeem his people from all the nations of the world through a cross. He would redeem covenant breakers by becoming a curse for them so that they could receive the blessing of God's covenant love. He would deliver them from evil. So our text today is right after Isaiah 53 where we've been given the good news of the suffering servant who saves all who believe in him. Jesus restores our broken relationship with God. There's nothing left for us to do. It is finished, was his cry from the cross. Now we come to Isaiah 54. And I have almost always been stunned by this. The first word we get is sing or rejoice after Isaiah 53. We're going to try to find out why that is today. The redeemed of the Lord after the cross of Christ, are called to say so by singing. 
We're invited to respond to the good news of Jesus because it is finished. The cross has accomplished our redemption by singing our hearts out to the Lord who is our salvation. That's what we're called to do. I love what Alec Matier says of Isaiah 54 and 55. He says, response is the keynote of chapters 54 and 55. In his saving work, the servant has done everything removing sin, establishing in righteousness, creating a family. The way is therefore open for response, pure and simple, to sing over what someone else has accomplished, to enjoy a feast for which someone else had paid. Take those words in. To sing over what someone else has accomplished, to enjoy a feast for which someone else has paid. That's what Isaiah 54 and 55 is about. Respond to the salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ. So right after we hear the details of this Redeemer's sacrifice in chapter 53, we're given a special invitation in chapter 54. Salvation is accomplished now. Through Christ. So now it's time to sing. Now, we're going to get there in a second. But as we start moving through this text, okay, I, I want to say one thing that will help us hopefully make sense of this chapter and hopefully make sense of much of Scripture. It's a key that I've found helpful when interpreting the Bible and uh, uh, even this text, especially the Old Testament. The problem we often face when we read the Bible is there's promises here declared, Right? There's promises that's, that God says certain things. The problem we often face is uh, how these promises of God are fulfilled. Are they all true of me right now? So here's a key that I hope helps you as much as it has helped me. It's what many have called the already not yet principle. Have you heard this? Some of you probably have. Let me explain. All of God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus, right? 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, speaking of Jesus, right? Okay, so this is good. So what God declares comes to us through Jesus. It's, it's, it, it comes through Him. This is good. So when the Bible talks about adoption, for example, it says we're adopted in Christ. Those who trust in Jesus are already adopted, Right? We're already adopted into God's family. This is absolutely true of us now. By faith in Christ, we're adopted. We're sons in Christ. We enjoy the benefits of being sons of God in Christ, absolutely. We have the spirit of adoption in our hearts, and we have the privilege as sons to come to God. But we have not yet received our full inheritance as sons yet, right? We have not yet fully receive that because there are parts of this adoption that are not yet fulfilled that are still future, right? So there's an already and not yet aspect to God's promises for adoption for believers. That was just an example. It's already true and yet it's not yet fulfilled. There's more to be realized in the future about our adoption. We're going to get an inheritance. Tells us something of that in the scriptures, but it's still in the future. And so it's a little vague for us, but it's true of us because of, because of Jesus. 
So this already not yet principle is going to help us as we put our minds to this text because it keeps us from over-realizing or under-realizing what the promises of God are in the text today. Okay, so we must try to discern what is already fulfilled in Christ and what is not yet fulfilled but still in the future, which is coming for those in Christ. So let's work through Isaiah 54 with this in mind. There's promises here that are already true and are not yet true. But they're true in Jesus. The fulfillment is coming. Some have been realized. Okay? All right, the first thing we see in this text is that Christ restores our broken relationship with God, then invites us to sing by faith. Like I've been alluding to, the first thing we hear God say in this text is sing. It says there in verse 1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So right after we've received the good news of the suffering servant, we get an invitation from God himself to sing. And here, God uses a few analogies for his people that have great significance in Scripture. In verse 1, he likens his people to a barren woman and a deserted wife. Not flattering terms. Then in verse 4, he'll liken her to a widow. These aren't terms of endearment, but they're actually terms of shame. He's reminding his people that they haven't been fruitful nor faithful to him. They're broken spiritually in exile, and they need God's supernatural intervention. And God is saying, sing and rejoice because though you don't see it yet, your supernatural breakthrough, your supernatural uh, intervention is coming. I'm going to do it. The physical and spiritual exile of God's people doesn't mean God is done working on their behalf. He's got plans, great plans for his people. He's going to do something better than they can imagine and better than they deserve. And God is telling his people to sing about something they haven't yet seen with their eyes yet. There will be a day when they'll have more children than those who were in labor. And I think the point here is that God will bring new spiritual life to people who are spiritually barren, namely the Gentiles. In fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, um, so I interpret it this way because Paul quotes this verse and argues this in Galatians 4, uh, which we'll leave for another day. But he, he uses this in an argument talking about the Gentiles. But the point is that even though God's people were stubborn and spiritually barren, he's going to bring new spiritual birth to them. Not, but not only to them, but also to the nations of the world. And here's when God is flexing his muscle a little bit. If you see in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says something so incredible. It's just amazing. Listen to what he says. Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the, uh, the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I think he's speaking of his servant, Jesus, the light to the nations. Who's going to do, God's going to do big things, worldwide blessing. But he's saying, I don't just want to restore the relationship with my people, Israel. 
I want to do something big. I want to I want to restore my relationship with the whole world, with all the nations of the world. And he'll do this through his true servant Jesus, whose very name as people call upon it in faith, gathers people from the ends of the earth into the church. Right? So this is a promise we could say is already and not yet fulfilled. Right? Because though we are in the church, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, not all the nations have come yet, have they? There's still much more work to do to bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. But God is going to bring new birth to people who are barren right now. Were then and are now. He's going to do something in the lives of the Gentiles. The uh, ESV study Bible says, The old covenant people of God who failed to bless the world were like a barren woman. Under the new covenant, God's people become the mother of a growing family. The present task of God's people is to labor in expectancy. Prepare for more people to be added to your family. So this is the reason he calls them to respond in song. Let the Redeemer Lord say so. He wants them to prepare for the harvest of Gentile believers that will come in the future. But right now they're to take action based on his word. In addition to singing, they were to, the, an, an analogy is used to expand their homes because their family was going to grow. Uh, again, I think this is referring to a spiritual harvest and expansion through conversions of the Gentiles. Enlarge the place of your tent, verse 2, and let the curtains of your habitants be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. In verse 4, we see these words, offspring, nations, and people. How could we not think of God's promises to Abraham when he said, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. How would they be blessed? New Testament takes pains to say, through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, the people of the world will be blessed. The nations will come and be gathered in through faith in Jesus. So the idea here is that God will spread his people throughout the whole world. He'll have people as light spread throughout the world. And they will populate and possess the nations and cities that were once deserted. The promises of God come true through faith in Jesus. God's words to Abraham will come to pass. So sing. <laughs> and how many of us Gentiles here today, I'm sure most of us are Gentiles, um, are recipients of this grace. We've received it. We've, we've come to Jesus and been brought into the family of God. This has been fulfilled in us by faith. Someone came to us and told us about Jesus. And now we're in the family of God. The promises of God have come true. But they're still coming true. This has been fulfilled in us by faith in Jesus. He's promised all spiritual blessings in Christ to those of us who are in Christ. He's promised forgiveness of sins, eternal, unbreakable friendship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These promises are already true about us, but not yet fully realized. 
We feel them faintly, but we'll experience them fully one day. There's more to come. God calls us to live by faith in the things that He says, though we don't yet see them. It's true of us. So what about you? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting God right now to come through on His Word? Have you believed in His Son, Jesus? Even if you can't see how things are going to work out, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? There's much blessing in doing so. Greater blessing than you believe or can imagine. As we see next, Christ restores our broken relationship with God. Then He comforts us with His words. Look at verse 4. God saying here, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Now, instead of laying a guilt trip on his uh, unfaithful people, God assures and comforts them with words of hope, dignity, and love. Knowing what they deserve and what they're facing, they may be fearful. But God takes those fears away with these words. He reverses their reputation here. They're no longer barren, ashamed, or disgraced. They're loved by the Lord who made them, and He will remake them. They have no reason to be confused about their standing with Him anymore. Why? Because the Lord is their Redeemer. He has redeemed them. He is the Lord. He is their salvation. He mended the broken relationship through Christ. The Lord of hosts is their maker, and He is their husband. That's a term of endearment now. He's in charge of everything and everybody. What He says is most important. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is the God above and over all the earth. And He says, I'm your husband. I'm the faithful one, and I will be faithful to you. And he says, the reproach or disgrace of your widowhood, you will remember no more. The disgrace of widowhood, the disgrace of barrenness and infertility, we do not catch. But in those days, these are not things that anyone wanted to be true of them. And God is saying, listen, you're not going to even remember. You're not going to worry about that anymore because I'm faithful to you. I'm your husband. You're the unfaithful wife. I remain faithful to my covenant. They are the ones who went after other lovers and he kept pursuing her. How lovely is the Lord. Bring this into our own lives and personalize it. How has your week gone, unfaithful friend? Me too. Been faithful to the Lord? 10 out of 10 today? 10 out of 10 this week? No. He remains faithful to us, doesn't He? He keeps pursuing us, doesn't He? How lovely is the Lord! This reminded me of uh, what He said in uh, chapter 40, right? Comfort, comfort, my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. 
tenderly. Speak tenderly. He could come and be hard and harsh and tough on them, but he says, I want you to speak in a certain way. Be tender with them. And these are tender words, I believe. Words of the most intimate union we know as humans between a husband and a wife. God is the loving husband of his unloving people. And he says, your maker is your husband. God's people who have been disgraced are embraced by the lover of their souls. What a savior. Now, how does this make you feel? Have you been disgraced in your life? Have you been the subject of shame and ridicule by others? People smeared you. Well, feel the warmth of the embrace of God as your husband who welcomes you and calls you in. Well, let's not stop here because God piles on more good words for us. Next, we see that Christ restores our broken relationship with God. Then, He assures us of His compassion. For the Lord has called you, verse 6, the Lord has called you like a like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. The analogy continues. Though His people deserve the worst, God promises them nothing but the best. Though God is using terms of shame for His people, He isn't rubbing their nose in their filth here. Instead, He speaks uh, words of welcome, of invitation, uh, coming from His heart of compassion. God had a purpose in it for his people. He recalls that they suffered under his disciplinary anger, but that anger was but for a moment, meaning the exile had an end to it. So they they did feel shame, of course. They were separated and estranged from God, but that was just temporary. God had a purpose in it for his people. He, He was disciplining them, not to take out retribution on them and to punish them. He disciplined them to restore them. So they could see their own heart. Oh, I'm unfaithful. I need you, Lord. And just in case we're tempted to think that God is just uh, putting up with his people, look closely at verse 6. The Lord says he calls his people back like a husband who calls his deserted wife back. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And how does he call her back? How does he do this? He wins her heart back with his compassion, as we'll see. And his compassion leads him to send his son. And his compassion leads the Son of God to go to the cross in a loving sacrifice for his bride. His compassion drives him to the cross. God's Son would call back his deserted wife by being deserted for them. They receive God's love because he received God's wrath on the cross. Look at verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In flowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. God isn't trying to dismiss what happened. He is trying to show us and put it in perspective though. He says, I know exile was tough. It was for a brief moment that I deserted you. But listen here. With great compassion, I gather you. 
an overflowing moment, uh, sorry, an overflowing anger for a moment. Yes, that is true. I hid my face from you. Yes. But with everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. He's not minimizing the fact that they suffer and the pain that they went through, but he is acknowledging that compare that with my love, compare that with my compassion, and you will see quickly that that was just a brief moment. These are words that make you want to sing, don't they? Because they're words that are true of us in Christ. These promises are worth highlighting and returning to often, especially when you're grieved, especially when you're feeling the pain of life. God's people suffered separation from, from, with a, uh, uh, from him for a brief moment while they were in exile, absolutely. But this was not a, an abuse or a misuse of his anger. It was calculated, and it served his purpose. It did hurt them, but it did not harm them. He deserted them and hid his face from them, meaning the blessing and the felt favor of God was not something that they were experiencing in that moment. But he called them back. He pulled them back. He brought them back by his love. Keep reading to the end of verse 8. Scripture gets exciting here with a pleasant surprise. He says, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Do you like that word everlasting? Everlasting love? Really? Yes, and who said it? Says the Lord, your Redeemer. He's the highest authority. His word is what matters most. He now assures his people of his everlasting love and compassion. Because of Jesus, we don't need to be worried about our standing with God anymore. He has everlasting love for us in Christ. It is finished. It was finished for us on the cross so we can feel the realities of his love forever. Yes, now but even more so in the future. Everlasting love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's this that we need most, especially when we're feeling ashamed, embarrassed, estranged from God and His people because of our foolish ways, right? Because we've turned our backs on God, we might be embarrassed to come back to church and lift our head up again and look people in the eyes. We're all failures here. Lift your head up. <laughs> Jesus loves you. We're all failures here. None of us are impressive. But what assures us most in those feelings of unimpressiveness in compared with the love of God is His compassion. It's His love. It's everlasting. We can come back to Him. How do we know it's safe to come back to Jesus? to God through Jesus is because He loves us. He assures us of that in His Word. In our brokenness and pain, isn't it His love and compassion that comforts us most? I love what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, When pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least tincture of the love of God more than all. Just a little texture of the love of God. That's what I need right now, a little tincture. I know it's an old word, but a little touch of the love of God is what we need most when we're bearing great pain. 
So let's be the people that are extending that love to one another today in our church. Friend, are you in pain right now? Are you feeling sore from sin and suffering and sorrowing? Have you turned to Jesus in your sorrows? If so, you're assured of this promise here. Verse 8. They're yours in Him. He says with everlasting love, I have compassion on you. Take these words into your heart and personalize them today. These are words to write home about, aren't they? Make them your first thoughts in the morning and your last thoughts at night. Find songs that assure you of this truth and keep singing them till you feel their realities. There is no lack of love in the Lord our Redeemer. His is an everlasting love that remains and endures forever for failures like us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Can't you be confident when you hear things like this that it's okay to not have it all figured out? We're failures, but Jesus loves us. Now as we continue to proceed through this text, let's not stop hoping and trusting and grabbing hold of the good news because greater things are yet to come for God's people. And this is what God is declaring in these next few verses. Here we see that Christ restores our broken relationship with God. Then he reminds us of his covenant of peace. Verses 9 through 13 cover this. Now look at verse 9. It says, This is like the days of Noah to me. Alluding again to their exile when they suffered under God's anger. God reminds them of how he dealt with Noah in a similar way. He goes back to the time when he dealt with Noah. In verse 9, we see that Noah is an example of of both God's judgment and his covenant love for his people. Here's a theme you see throughout Isaiah and all of Scripture. God's judgment and salvation often run in parallel lines. You see it clearly with his covenant to Noah. Noah's generation was all destroyed by God in a worldwide flood, right? The people were given opportunity to turn to the living God, but they refused to do so, so they suffered under his judgment. Only Noah and his family believed, and only they were spared. In this historic event, God was actively saving them from judgment, while at the same time executing and exacting his judgment on those who did not believe. And and all the while, he's keeping his promises. It's what Paul calls the kindness and severity of God. We shouldn't mistake his kindness for weakness. He is, after all, the God of all the earth. He does not pardon the guilty. He does, however, offer restoration to everyone who believes in His Son. And this is precisely what happens at the cross, right? Judgment comes to the one providing salvation to others. Judgment and salvation running parallel. We're saved through the sufferings of another. This is the good news. But the bad news is that those who don't turn to him will receive his rebuke, his judgment. So Noah serves as an illustration of this. And as we'll see next, the Lord would permanently restore his relationship with his people. As the Lord kept his promise not to flood the earth back in Noah's day with water again. This has not happened to date, right? So he is still keeping his word to us. And in the same way, he wouldn't flood his people with exile and estrangement from him anymore. He will keep his word. Check out what happened to Noah. You can trust him. In verse 9, he says, As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, 
So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isn't that amazing? The mountains, things that we think are so permanent, he uses as illustrations to compare with his everlasting love. He says, though those things, the mountain and the hills, will be removed, my steadfast love shall not depart from you. You think the hills in your neighborhood are permanent? Even more so permanent is the love of God towards those that are His. He will have compassion on you. Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Here God gives Uh, God speaks words of blessing to his storm-tossed, afflicted, and uncomfortable people. He fills their minds with words of promise, stability, and peace. His analogy changes from a restored wife earlier to now a restored city. He seems to be communicating that his people have a future that is stable and secure because of his relationship with them, his covenant of peace, which is based on his compassion that cannot be taken away. I believe the covenant of peace here will ultimately be fulfilled in the new covenant through the blood of Christ. All believers will experience peace because Jesus came and made peace with us. God's people become His children by faith in Christ, and God's children will know the Lord and experience the peace that all of us desire because He's a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. This is an already-not-yet reality, isn't it? We know the Lord through Jesus. We learn Jesus through His Word. Most of us are Gentiles in this room, spiritual children brought near from all the nations of the earth. We have peace already through Christ, but the best is yet to come still. Great shall be the peace of God's children. There will be a day when trouble isn't around every corner. There will be a day when peace fills us and fills the new heavens and the new earth where we will be. But we haven't yet experienced this. So it's not yet fulfilled. But by faith we know this is just up ahead for us who follow Jesus. And this gives us hope for today, doesn't it? And this leads us to consider the final point of the sermon, which I will finish at some point soon. Uh, Christ restores our broken relationship with God, then promises His protection. In verse 14, He says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear, and from terror, uh, uh, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. At this point, there should be no doubt in our mind that God is for us, that God is for his people. We hear words that uh, must have been so refreshing for the people of God who heard them at that time because God says he will establish them in righteousness. They were exiles, like the opposite of established people, right? And one aspect of being uh, righteous is being in a covenant relationship with God. So he's saying, you're going to not only be established as people, but you're going to be established in righteousness, alluding to the fact that you're going to have an established, secure relationship with me. 
This is yet another way God is saying the broken covenant relationship between you and I has been repaired. And not only that, there's more to come about it. God will establish, protect, and preserve His people. And they'll be far from oppression with no cause for fear or terror to fill their hearts. When they were in exile, God made it clear that they were suffering under His hand, right, for their sin, for walking away from Him. But now He says, if you suffer strife, if uh, you suffer in relational conflicts, it doesn't come from me. That is to say, if you suffer with relational strife, relational issues, relational pains, it won't destroy you, and I'm not disciplining you. God's back isn't turned away from them anymore. He says in verse 16 to 17, Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. No matter how powerful or how many of our enemies surround us, God will defeat them all. Then we'll be safe and sound with him forever. Until then, they may plot and they may scheme, but no weapon formed against us shall prosper in the end. And one of our greatest enemies right now, of course, is Satan, right? And he does plot and he does accuse us in judgment. But God says here that his people, his servants, have been vindicated or made right with God. They've been justified. That is what the Lord himself declares about us. Reminds us of Romans 8, doesn't it? We are spared from final danger because the Lord has kept his covenant with us. Because the Lord Jesus endured a cross of shame, we can hold our heads up. Hold our heads up high and sing of our salvation through Jesus. These are the benefits of being the redeemed of the Lord. So in closing, have you trusted in Jesus to save you? To save you, not just from your temporary issues, but from your sin, from your sin. Are you confident that he's all you need to restore your broken relationship with God? Are you still trying to work it out on your own without him? Trust in Jesus. He is the Redeemer. He says that whoever comes to Him, He will never cast out. You'll never be in exile if you're with Jesus. You'll never be estranged from God if you come to Jesus. He restores our relationship with God and then He invites us in. Have you accepted His invitation? If so, does it make you want to sing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent a Redeemer. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all who call upon him. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider these truths, that our hearts would be longing for more of you in our lives, longing for more truths that affirm and confirm that you love us in Christ and that you're good and, Lord, the power by your Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinful desires that says we're the most important thing in life. May you change our hearts, Lord, and make us to be the kind of people that live to serve and please you.
We pray this in Jesus' name.